What do music, forgetting things, and taking a risk have to do with healing? You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, your host, and with me today is Dr. Larry Dossey. Dr. Dossey is an internist and former chief of staff of Medical City Dallas Hospital. He has been the author of nine books, including a New York Times bestseller, and his most recent book, The Extraordinary Healing Power of Ordinary Things, was published by Random House in 2006. He's also the past president of the Isthmus Institute of Dallas, an organization dedicated to exploring the possible convergences of science and religious thought. Dr. Dossey comes to us today from his office in Santa Fe. Larry, thanks for joining us today. Dr. Cohn, thank you for asking me. All righty. How about maybe we start with you telling us a little bit about your professional life as an internist in, well, let's say conventional medicine before you got into some of these other issues. Well, my background as an internist is typically conventional. I worked in a major hospital and was chief of staff at Medical City Dallas Hospital for quite a while. I spent about 20 years in clinical medicine, but for almost all of that period of time, I also had a parallel interest in the role of consciousness and mind-body activity in uh, health and illness, and that led to a series of books, not just looking at the role of the mind, but also the role of spiritual practices and making a difference in health outcomes. Your current book, The Extraordinary Healing Power of Ordinary Things, obviously delves into those issues. I was taken by one of the chapters uh, entitled Forgetting. I guess when most of us uh, think about forgetting something, certainly our patients worry that this may be the first evidence of uh, something like Alzheimer's. But in your book, you say uh, forgetting can be a good thing. <laughs> can you explain that? I often get into that uh, habit myself when I you know, can't find my car keys or my glasses. You know, Is this the first sign of Alzheimer's or something worse? But I think that there are some positive roles that forgetting plays. The instance, I think, for most people that illustrates the virtues of forgetting is when we pair it with forgiveness, as when, for example, we say forgive and forget. There is a new area of research that's been pioneered by people like uh, Dr. Everett Worthington of Virginia Commonwealth University and others looking at the health effects of forgiving and forgetting. What they have been able to show is that people who cannot forgive and forget but sort of carry around uh, free-floating grudges toward slights that people have given them over the years have an elevated uh, blood level of cortisol and adrenaline and stress hormones in general. And then when these people are able to let go of that free-floating anger and hostility and aggression, the stress hormones come down, the immune system uh, becomes more active, and if you look at their health profiles longitudinally, it gets better. So we pay a price for our unwillingness to forgive and forget, and I think this deserves uh, more attention uh, from clinicians. Have you had any dialogue with our colleagues in the psychiatric business about those issues, how that particular mind-body connection might work and whether it gains credibility in, in the psychiatric community? Not a lot in terms of the specific intervening variables uh, physiologically, but I have a great many friends that I still refer patients to who have problems with aggressiveness and 
need aggression management and so on. And I know personally a lot of psychiatrists who do follow this literature and are pretty keen on uh, putting these principles to work. You talked a lot about not only mind-body connection, but the spiritual needs of our patients and, and how we get to that. I know that uh, when we were in school, that was kind of a taboo subject. Um, <laughs> is, is that still the case, do you think? Well, you're right. It was a taboo subject. Uh, I had a colleague back at uh, the medical school that I attended, Southwestern Medical School in Dallas, who was on the psychiatry faculty, and he wanted to begin a program, a class for medical students on meditation, and he wanted to teach it on campus. And he was threatened with dismissal from the faculty should he pursue that. This is back in the 70s. I don't think anybody raises an eyebrow any longer about things like meditation and stress management and relaxation in general. It's pretty much accepted. And I think that the taboo has been broken, Dr. Cohn. I don't think that there's all that much intellectual indigestion using words like consciousness and spirituality anymore. I recall back in 1993 when I wrote a book called Healing Words that came to be used widely in medical schools around the country, that at that time there were only three medical schools out of the 125 in the country that had any formal coursework looking at the research correlating spiritual practices and health, but now over 90 of the nation's medical schools have come on board with formal curricula changes going in that direction where they actually look at many of these randomized double-line studies and, and so on. So I think the taboo has been broken. And if you talk to young medical students these days, most of them have a hard time figuring out you know, why we had so much trouble with it 20 or 30 years ago. Well, they wonder about how we made it without video games, too. So if you're, uh, if you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, and I'm speaking with Dr. Larry Dossie, and we're talking about music, forgetting, and spirituality. So, Larry, let's talk a little bit about music. You wrote extensively in your recent book about uh, music, and I guess we all know that music helps us relax and it's good for stress relief, but you go a little further than that. You say it has a healing power that sometimes seems uh, miraculous. Well, I think, you know, the use of music in our hospitals, even during surgery, we all know now that it can help surgeons relax. There's been a good deal of research showing that stress responses in the operating room and the personnel are much reduced if there's pleasant music playing in the background. It's been looked at fairly thoroughly. It doesn't seem to matter whether the surgeon prefers Brahms or Willie Nelson, you know, as long as it's pleasing. The stress hormone rises and surgeons are reduced by that kind of music. But the thing that I wrote about in the book are some of these cases which number above a dozen now that have popped up in the English-speaking medical literature where something phenomenal goes on. When people in coma listen to music, I rounded up three or four of those cases for the book. A typical one was a 66-year-old man who had been in a coma in a neurological intensive care unit in a British hospital after a brain injury from diving into the shallow end of a pool. And this man was deeply comatose until Christmas rolled around and the carolers came through the critical care units. And when they sang, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, this man woke up. He started pulling out his IVs and trying to get out of bed. The nurses had never seen anything like this. They all started weeping, so the report said. 
And within a couple of days, this man had made a recovery after being in deep coma for four months. There are many cases like this, and I just sort of scratch my head and wonder what's going on here. Most people who investigate this suggest that we lay down memories with respect to certain kinds of music. In the case of Christmas carols, the memories generally are associated with a lot of warm, tender memories dating to childhood. The hearing, the sense of hearing may persist even though the person may be unconscious and in apparent coma. And so the thinking is that certain sorts of music, because they stir deep-seated memories, have the power to move people physiologically and neurologically. I've given instructions to my wife. If I get hauled off in coma to some neurological unit to recruit some carolers and have <laughs> come in and serenade me. <laughs> that sounds like a good idea. They could put in your advanced directives. <laughs> well, you talked about how music is sort of at a practical level. It could be important to practitioners as well as patients. You also had some interesting thoughts about uh, music and governments and why governments sometimes fear music and try to control it. Well, this, this absolutely fascinates me. If you look at some of the totalitarian regimes that have sprung up around the world in recent decades, one of the first things that some of them want to do is to get control of the music. This was dramatically illustrated when the Taliban took over in uh, Afghanistan following the exit of the Soviets in the late 80s. One of the first things that the Taliban did was to ban music and musical instruments. They raided the archives uh, in Kabul where huge stores of Afghani folk music were kept. They destroyed the archives, the musical archives. They even executed several people in the soccer stadium in Kabul for actually playing uh, musical instruments and singing. They were deathly afraid of the music. And one sees a pattern, particularly in illiterate countries where people don't read pamphlets or books because they are illiterate. The word gets around by the music. And so many regimes fear music because it can spread insurrection and political instability. And so music in those situations is often banned. So I think they're right to be scared of it. You know, if you look back at our civil rights uh, movement, the song that uh, is associated with it in the Deep South is uh, We Shall Overcome. You know, that was the rallying cry for civil rights marchers for years in the Deep South. So even in our country, I think we see uh, evidence that music has the power to stir people deeply at a sociological and political level. Let's move a little bit from music to doing nothing. Now, we're docs. We always want to do something, and certainly when it comes to our patients, that's why they come to us. They come to us to do something. And yet, you make a point in your book about sometimes doing nothing is a good thing. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, you're quite correct, I think, Dr. Cohen, about the difficulty of physicians doing nothing. I think doing nothing is one of the hardest things we attempt as physicians. We're never better than when we're really doing something more spectacular the better. But there is a growing database now that we may overdo uh, in medicine. There are several studies that have come out of the VA administration where people have been divided into a couple of groups. In one study, they were given special care. After discharge from the hospital, they were assigned a nurse who would phone and make sure they returned for their follow-up visits, got all of their tests, kept their office visits, took their medicines as directed, and so on. This group was compared with a usual care group who were just sort of dismissed to follow orders on their own as best they could with no special follow-up or intervention. 
the researchers who designed this study were convinced that the special care group would have a lower fatality rate and a lower rehospitalization rate because of the special care. But they stopped the study at six months because the increased fatality rate was so much higher in the special care group that they were not justified. They failed in continuing the study. This is one of the most dramatic examples I know of that has looked at the benefits sometimes of doing less instead of more. This is so counterintuitive, I think, for most physicians that we just sort of shake our heads and wonder what went wrong with that study. But I think that those kinds of findings are sobering. Well, I think so. And I know as doctors, we have trouble doing nothing. But I think, okay, docs out there, listen to this. Less care can be better and more medical care is not always good. I want to thank Dr. Larry Dossey, who's been our guest. We've been discussing music, forgetting, doing nothing, and spirituality. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For questions and comments, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com or visit us at reachmd.com. Thanks for listening.